Good evening and welcome to episode 34 of the Political Mike podcast. What a week it's been. Um, you know, we're exactly one year away from the time in which the world turned upside down. Uh, one year marking the uh, anniversary uh, that the COVID-19 uh, virus really took a strong effect on American society and everyday life. Uh, in addition to that, uh, Congress has passed a sweeping uh, legislative legislative measure to address this pandemic, uh, and it has passed the House and has been signed by President Joe Biden, his first major legislative uh, action since taking office uh, just uh, a little over uh, a month ago. In addition to that, uh, we're seeing that uh, there's a lot of Republican criticism to this bill, uh, mostly for its huge spending measures. And here to help me break all of this down are uh, very, very distinguished uh, panelists. I'm excited to have the panelists I have. Uh, I'm feeling like I'm in class. Most of them are from Howard Law. Uh, but without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce these amazing folks. I'm going to go ahead and introduce um, Maria Nassir. Maria is currently in her last year pursuing her Juris Doctorate uh, at Howard University School of Law. She hopes to focus her work on immigration and human rights and civil rights law. Uh, she obtained her English uh, BA with, with a minors in uh, information technology and graphic design from George Mason University. Over her professional career, she went on a study abroad program with her school to South Africa to take classes and intern with the Judicial uh, Inspectorate of Correctional Services and worked as a student attorney uh, at the Human and Civil Rights Clinic with the Washington Legal Clinic for the Homeless and CASA de Maryland Incorporated. This past year, she built her, her experience with Al Ortro uh, Alado, the Democratic National Committee and the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center. Uh, she's a student contributor to the 1619 Project Law School Initiative. Uh, in her spare time, she loves to read, write, hike, and spend time with her friends and family. She hopes to lend her time and skills to public service in line with Charles Hamilton Houston's vision of social engineering, a lawyer through and through. Thank you so much, Maria, for being here. <clears throat> Next, we have uh, Chris Johnson. Uh, Chris is a third year uh, student at Howard University School of Law as well. Um, hailing from the great state of Michigan, Chris graduated from Howard University in 2018 with a BA in history. Uh, during his undergraduate education, Chris had the privilege of interning in Congress, uh, first with the Democratic staff for the House Committee on Education and the Workforce, second with the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. Uh, I've had a similar experience. Um, in addition, Chris had the pleasure the pleasure to intern with Friedman Consulting LLC and the general counsel offices of both the Great Lakes Friedman Consulting LLC and the Great Council offices of both um, the Great Lakes Water Authority and the American Association of Retired uh, Persons, AARP. Upon graduation, Chris will be joining the law firm Deb Voice and Plimpton LLP, focusing on corporate transactional matters. And he was also going to be a, a faithful uh, donor to the Democratic National Committee. <laughs> Chris, thanks for being here. I added that last part in there, by the way. But I'm going to go ahead and introduce uh, Jasmine. It's always such a, a, an amazing experience to have Jasmine back on uh, the discussion. So she had to be on for a week like this. Uh, Jasmine was born and raised in the Gateway to the West, St. Louis, Missouri. Upon graduation, uh, from one of two historically black colleges and universities in Missouri, Harris-Stowe State University. Jasmine moved to Washington, D.C. to pursue a career serving the people of her hometown as a congressional intern for former Congressman William Lacey Clay Jr. of Michigan's 1st District. After the completion of her internship, she became the staff assistant for Congressman uh, Gerald Nadler of New York, uh, chairman of the House Committee on the Judiciary. Uh, currently, Jasmine serves as a special assistant for the United States Senator um, Tammy Duckworth of Illinois. Uh, by serving in these roles over the last three years, she witnessed essential hearings that laid the foundation uh, for the case of the impeachment of Donald of President Donald J. Trump. She's also one of the very few personal staffers to be present on the Senate floor during those proceedings. As a result, she had the unique opportunity to see firsthand the entire impeachment process from inception to reality. In addition, uh, to her time spent as a staffer in both the House and Senate, she also serves as the Vice President of the Senate Black Legislative Staff Caucus, a 2020 to 2021 scholar for the American University Women in Politics We Lead program, and a steadfast advocate for the success of HBCUs uh, for their students, faculty, and staff. Jasmine, it's always a pleasure to have you. So thank you for uh, giving us some of your time tonight. Um, Mike Walker. Mike is a third year law student. You're starting to see a trend a third year law student at Howard University School of Law, Philadelphia native, 
Uh, he's an avid Phila uh, Philadelphia sports fan. Uh, during his time at Hustle, uh, he has served as a member of the Howard Law Journal and the Education Law Society. After graduation, he's going to serve as a judicial law clerk in the U.S. District Court for the District of Connecticut. So, Mike, thanks for being here. And last but certainly not least, Cassandra Knopf, uh, 3L as well at Howard University School of Law. She's passionate about politics and justice from a young age, and she began engaging in the civil process uh, by writing to the president to protest the Iraq war, the Iraq invasion, uh, at the age of eight. Uh, recently, she this translated into a passion for uh, human and civil rights law, and specifically environmental justice. Uh, Cassandra has interned with Representative Sharice uh, David's office on Capitol Hill, um, and she worked for an environmental nonprofit based in Maryland. Um, she has secured a fall position uh, last fall for the Environmental Protection Agency, and she's also excited about graduating uh, this May as well. Excellent panel. Um, I want to start off the conversation by talking about the sweeping legislation that has just passed into law. Uh, President Biden's first legislative victory, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. This is a very significant piece of legislation. Um, and I know a lot of attention has gone to the fact that um, about 85% of American households are now going to be expecting a $1,400 check in the mail. Uh, but there are other provisions that really just um, make this legislation one of the most progressive pieces of legislation since the Civil Rights Act. Uh, for instance, uh, the COVID relief bill is actually um, giving farmers, five black farmers, $5 billion um, who would have, and these are farmers who have lost their 90% of their land over the past century uh, because of systemic discrimination and a cycle of debt. Um, Lindsay, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina took to CNN and said, well, this constitutes as re reparations. Um, <laughs> in addition to this, um, the Pew Research Center shows that there's broad support for this legislation. 70% of the American public in this very polarized era support this bill, while only three in 10 uh, 28% opposes it. 41% uh, of Republicans support it uh, and Republican-leaning independents, while 94% of Democrats and Democratic-leaning supporters uh, support this bill. I want to get your thoughts. Anyone can jump in on you know the, just the magnitude of this bill. And being that this bill has passed with zero uh, Republican support, what, does, what, what are the implications uh, down the road? Um, 2022 is on the minds of a lot of these uh, senators, um, especially because a lot of these Republican senators have announced they will be retiring. I think uh, Roy Blunt just being the fifth Republican senator announcing he's not running for re-election uh, next year. What say you, panelists? Well, um, thanks for having us, Mike. Uh, I'll say that that to answer your question about, about what does this mean in general, I, I, I think generally speaking, this is the way it had to go. Um, you're, you're never going to get the consensus needed to pass uh, legislation with 60 votes in the Senate the way the way maybe some people and obviously of course Republicans would say is the proper way of doing things. As far as what it means as far for the Biden presidency moving forward, I think I think it's kind of telling that that even though it didn't really get the it, the Republican support that you would want a bipartisan, truly bipartisan bill to, to have. Um, I will say it's pretty telling that not, there aren't very many Republicans who are who are saying a whole lot negatively about it outside of generally not supporting it like they that, like they have in the past. And so I think that that speaks to the fact that they know there are a lot of good provisions in this for people to for their constituents and they want to obviously keep their you know keep a safe face and say like, well I never supported this but at the same time they they aren't actively uh, trying to tear it tear it down and tear Biden down for it so I think it it actually is telling about about where the constituents stand even though um, it doesn't have the support that you would want and and then you have senators like Rick Scott of Florida telling cities and states not to accept the funding from this legislation. Um, Roger Wicker, uh, another Republican senator, uh, saying, you know, just again, voicing ardent opposition to this bill. Um, and I'm just assuming that they're playing by the same playbook in two, of 2009, uh, when you had democratic control um, and you had the need for immediate legislative action and you had on the other side, the Republican side, just a refusal to, um, 
give any kind of concession or any kind of support to what could potentially be a victory for the new president. Um, and I think, you know, what the Biden administration is doing is learning from that. And part of why I think he's going on the air tonight is to ensure, because as the president, you know, you're also wearing the hat of leader of the party, uh, that it was the Democrats' responsibility that this bill actually became a reality. Um, we would not have this conversation had not been for Georgia flipping with Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff uh, now taking their seats and bringing back the bacon for their constituents with this bill. Um, but, you know, do you all think that this would age well um, in the light, in light of the fact that so much, you know, that we expect to stick on politicians um, in this Trump era or, you know, what was the Trump era doesn't seem to have the effect it would have 30, 20 years ago. Um, you know, is this something that would cost them uh, legislatively? I think there's multiple layers of what's happening within the GOP and it's very confusing and some of it's really contradictory. So it's really difficult to say. Because on the one hand, we have um, them trying to fall back on traditional uses of like attacks on um, Democrats for, you know, personal reasons or, you know, uh, past uh, misconduct reasons. Um, but then they're in the position where they have enabled behavior like that to an upteenth and absurd degree for four years. So they can't really have teeth on that. But then they have also people within their own party, like Josh Hawley and Senator Cawthorn, who are coming out with these completely outrageous um, allegations against them. So it, I don't think there's any cohesive uh, mode of thought behind it, except for pure political survival at this point. They don't represent... Um, the working class because they're not for lower taxes on working class and higher taxes on the top one five percent. They're not for uh, stronger unions. Um, they're really more impressed with uh, helping shareholders for large corporations. So to, to answer the question, it's very difficult to predict how people are going to react to them because they're kind of all over the place. Like, how are you supposed to react when someone is being very inconsistent and surprising at all times? You kind of just have to reel and wait for it to keep, like even out, right? And let me clarify to your point, Cassandra, about the inconsistency. Roger Wicker voted against the bill, but ended up praising the bill afterwards. And so I'm, I'm wondering if that's like a, a playbook of what's to come uh, with the uh, Republicans on the Senate, in, in the Senate, in the House, who have voted against this bill, uh, but once the effects of this bill actually get, you know, felt by the American public, remember, fourteen billion dollars is going towards vaccine distribution. Um, you also have a, a large portion of this uh, of the funding going towards uh, schools being reopened, one hundred thirty billion dollars uh, to ensure that schools can open safely, have improved ventilation, hire extra janitors. Um, when all of these things actually take effect, uh, and the public which already is in support of this bill, see see the tangible effects of this bill. Um, there's no way to go but up in, in, in my view. Um, and so I'm wondering if they're going to try to say, well, I wasn't against the, the spirit of the bill. I was against the amount of money we were pouring into it because I'm still a fiscal conservative. And so I'm wondering if that argument would still stick in light of the fact that there seemed to be such you know, no cooperation in terms of on their side to get what we have uh, accomplished. Um, yeah, I agree. Um, what I really feel like this bill does is it's doing everything that Republicans have been saying they wanted to do all of this time, um, but never really had the, the guts to do, right? Um, Biden is doing a really good job of like sticking to what he knows how to do, which is, you know, meet with the people that he's supposed to meet with and be um, one of those people that kind of works across the aisle. Well, he knows that he's not going to get their support right now because they're still dealing with the fallout of this past election. So now you're starting to see states like Georgia and all of these other states that are putting these incredibly just disgusting new rules and laws into place that are going is going to make it harder for people to vote in upcoming elections, like the midterm in the next general election and so on and so forth. So even though they are like not really kind of speaking up 
about, you know, the bill and what it what it's doing and it's helping the economy and this and the third. I think a lot of their attention is retreating back to their home states and focusing on how to make it harder for these states in the future to flip. We we have so much in jeopardy over the like the next year um, that they're, they're going to choose they're going to choose their battles wisely. And I don't think this is a battle that they want to fight right now. This is just being real. Uh, that's a, that's a really good point, and and I was thinking, you know, in the waning days of the Trump presidency, for, actually throughout the Trump presidency, there was no real serious concern about fiscal conservatism. Um, you know, they, nobody was wondering how much uh, the the wall was going to contribute to the deficit. Um, nobody was war wondering about any of the uh, programs that Trump wanted to do. How much that would contribute to uh, the national debt? And so towards the end, he started to act like a 1960s mayor. Uh, when he started to announce that he wanted actually 2,000 checks and that Pelosi wasn't being generous enough. And <laughs> that was the first time you actually really saw public a public break with Mitch McConnell and, and, and prominent Republicans from Trump where they were saying, well, we don't really want to get $2,000 checks out, uh, but we're for COVID relief. And now we have the 1,400 proposal go forward and they take a strong, just complete opposite, like, not even trying to meet halfway in the middle. Um, and so the, the 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 way to jump back into that fiscal conservative argument to me is going to be like political gymnastics uh, because you had a party that was just capitulating all the way without any kind of concern for deficits or spending. And all of a sudden now when the people need it, that's all of a sudden when the, the, the concern for deficit and spending come back. Uh, Chris? Yes. I mean, well, I would just say that in regards to like, the political and gymnastics, of course, they're going to be like, you know, the Democrats are increasing the deficit when in actuality, you can look back, most of the deficits have increased under, under Republican presidents. That's not a problem until we have a Democrat who's in office. And so I think in terms of this bill and like what it means for the future, even if it is going to be like a positive outcome, which we are sure it's going to be, and it's going to have a positive impact on the community and for like the country, you're probably going to still have an argument that the cost was too much or wasn't needed because they're going to say that, you know, it's too late to do this, you know, the con time's gonna come back soon, this sort of thing. So I think it's just gonna come down to, excuse me, uh, not even like a denial, just to like, a, yeah, I supported this, you know, in theory and in practice, it was too much money though. And so I can't go as far as to say that it was worth it, but you know, the economy is great now and here we are, but they're still gonna also, as Jasmine mentioned, do things like entrench themselves in their, in their jurisdictions and, you know, make it harder for people to vote because they are aware of the fact that their party base is not expanding and that's the problem. And it's just gonna be an issue of, they're always going to find a way, at least in my view, of getting around, like owning up to, yes, we were dealing with this and we may have been wrong about this sort of thing. But of course, you know, they're still trying to deal with their own issue of, is the Republican Party still the party of Trump? Um, time will tell. I'm sure it probably will be in, you know, the next two, three years, even four years from now. But we'll see. So I just think it just depends on, I don't think there'll ever be a moment where it's going to like play out that, oh, you didn't vote for it, so we're not going to put you back in office. I don't think that may be a thing, in certain, especially in many districts that's a good point. And I was thinking about, you know, as you were talking um, what Congressman Clyburn said on, on the show last week, where he said, you know, this is a bipartisan bill. Um, you have 41 percent of Republicans supporting it. Uh, you have 94 percent of Democrats supporting it. Um, it doesn't get more bipartisan than that these days. Um, so to have that much support and then say, well, this is not bipartisan because the elected leaders didn't vote for it um, isn't really a representation of how bipartisan this bill truly is among the American public. Um, and then I was thinking about CPAC and, and that they were, they couldn't really find something to attack Biden on. I was listening to a, uh, political analyst who were, who was actually on the ground at CPAC. And they said, when you go to the, uh, different booths and, and you know, look at the different things they have, the t-shirts and all of the souvenirs and different things, they were still attacking Obama and Hillary Clinton and didn't really have anything to stick for Biden. And, you know, the, the idea that he's this crazy liberalist ready to spend and, and, you know, very fiscally irresponsible and all these other things just doesn't stick. Um, and so the fact that you have this bipartisan support for such a legislative measure, coupled with the fact that the public does not see Biden in the negative light that the party wants to see him, wants them to see him in, uh, I think all works to his advantage as we're moving forward. And I know it's going to get harder uh, because after this bill, you know, you need 60 votes in the Senate as a threshold for, you know, gun reform, um, and, and, you know, all these other important pieces of legislation are going to require so, so much more support. Uh, but this, I think, sets the tone really well, because 
um, all of a sudden now the public is going to feel, you know, the first effects of this. And, and, and then, you know, Biden going on the stump with Kamala Harris after this primetime address just really hammers it home. And I think that's the mistake of, of President Obama didn't make. And I think that that's why it cost him uh, the midterms in 2010 and 2014. Um, but I think Biden's, uh, you know, determined not to make those same mistakes. Maria, did you have anything uh, you want to add? I just want to add a part about the reparations. I don't think it's amazing because this bipartisan bill has has passed. It's, it's great. I just, the reparations comments, and I think that I have to address is this cannot end reparations. I think that has to be its own movement, and it has to be as big as how Howard is working to make it um, to equate it to this bill, it, it would just not do justice to all the work that is going on with this. Yeah, and, and it was a little difficult to hear you just now, but I think you know the gist of what you were saying was that um, you know as it relates to this bill, uh, the public support really is in alignment with um, the effects that this bill would have, which you know we've been emphasizing. And, you know, when you think of the fact that he brokered this deal between Johnson and Johnson and Merck, I was just thinking this is straight out the book of like FDR, uh, where you had all of these huge companies donating to these wartime efforts uh, and putting aside their their uh, temporal uh, competitiveness at the time, um, you know, for the sake of the national well-being. And, you know, very like this is a, that was a historic moment. You know, this is a, a one shot uh, vaccine. So if you have. 100 million doses of this vaccine as 100 million shots in arms for for folks. Uh, but I want to transition a little bit as time is slipping away um, because, you know, the House has been making uh, great strides in, in relatively uh, little time. Uh, the House Majority Whip uh, Clyburn and uh, uh, Representative Nadler, um, the Judiciary Chair of the House, uh, introduced the Enhanced Background Checks Act. Um, this is really significant because, you know, we're just about almost six years removed from the uh, attack uh, on that church in South Carolina, the mass shooting that took place. Um, and, and so now we have this uh, legislation that is proposed to um, actually extend uh, the initial background check review period from three to 10 days. Um, and after that 10, day, 10 business day period, if a background check is not completed, a purchaser may request an escalated review to spur the FBI to complete its investigation. Um, the bill also includes important protection for law-abiding gun purchasers that if the escalated review is not completed within the required 10-day period, the sale must go ahead and proceed. Um, you know, that's a compromise to, to, you know, to ensure that it gets some kind of bipartisan support. Uh, the Charleston loophole, which is, you know, one of the key provisions in here, uh, is the flaw in the background check system that enabled uh, a gunman to obtain a weapon used to murder nine people and, woo and wound three others uh, in 2015 at a Bible study. Um, and so this legislation is aimed at ensuring that that loophole uh, is, is, is no longer in effect. Um, in light of the fact that you have, you know, polit politicians, Republican politicians who are, uh, you know, getting so much contributions from the NRA um, and support from the NRA, um, does that concession of allowing uh, a, a responsible gun owner to continue to have a gun, uh, you know, after the background check, um, you know, is that a, enough of a concession to get, in your view, panelists, um, enough support to move forward? Um, and again, the concession, the concession is, um, you know, that for law-abiding purchasers, uh, gun purchasers, if the escalated review is not completed within the required ten days, the sale may still proceed. Um, in your view, is that enough? So the question is, is it enough that the, oh, sorry, um, there's like a 10 day, is that enough of a concession for this bill to actually pass in the Senate that you're asking, essentially? You're muted, Mike. If you're talking to him. Okay. You're Mike, Mike, you're muted if you're talking to us. I'm so sorry. Is that enough of an olive, is that enough of an olive branch uh, for the other side to go ahead and, and, meet the Democrats in the middle and get this in the Senate. I know it's a tall order because we're talking about uh, a very split Senate. And, and even Congressman Clyburn said, look, the Democrats are not really in control of that in the Senate. We have a 50-50 uh, House. And as long as you have the filibuster, the Democrats are not really in control. 
Um, so is this enough? And if not, um, you know, what should, you know, in your view, what other provisions would likely allow this bill to pass? Well, I, I actually kind of just want to address this filibuster. Um, I think that trying to offer all of branches and try to meet halfway in the middle and get bipartisan support is laughable at this point. We were not able to get a single bipartisan vote on any of the COVID relief bill, even though we're getting Republican senators now trying to take credit for it, like we pointed out before. Um, it's we did not get a single vote of support for it, and yet we still got rid of the $15 minimum wage. So to me, that was a loss. To me, that was um, a, a poor move by the Democrats because what we have seen in the last four years is that Republicans, when they have any kind of power, they use it to achieve an agenda. And what we are seeing now is that Democrats are given the same hands that we saw Republicans have before, and they are using restraint in order to coax some kind of positive reaction out of an extraordinarily volatile party that is more likely to turn around and bite you than it is to actually do anything to help. So I think the entire way of framing this gun reform bill as we're trying to get more bipartisan support is almost a useless endeavor because what they're going to do then if they see that the Democrats are just trying so hard to make this seem like they're looking for cooperation, all they have to do is shut it down like they did under Obama and say, no, we're not going to cooperate and we're going nowhere. And they know that. They know that the Democrats are weak in terms of the fact that they would like to stay by the rules and play by tradition and give benefit of the doubt. But we need to recognize that that is not good faith in both directions. So if we are serious about passing some kind of gun reform, we need to take that reality into account before we decide if we're willing to try and make it more palatable to a party that is not willing to cooperate. And, and that's a really good point because I was thinking, you know, is the minimum wage not being in the bill? Is that necessarily as much as a bad thing? Because now you can have another bill that's popular um, and you can campaign on that and rally your support with that. And so if the first bill passes and it's popular and then people see the effects of it, um, people, would folks have more faith in a second popular bill um, that people already, you know, the majority of the public already agree that the minimum wage should be should be raised as, as and you know in addition to that they are they agree that there should be some kind of comprehensive gun control um and so if you just capitalize on that popularity and you know in, in addition to being on the stump and you know taking credit for the bill getting you know folks generalized and, and galvanized around support for these two legislative measures would that be enough to cross the finish line uh to pressure enough republicans if not pressure them and um get the uh, the public to pay enough attention uh, to sustain until the midterms? Well, to, um, to kind of go back to the, to the, um, the gun control legislation, I, I think that's specific, you know, to um, the, the NRA and, and the stranglehold that, that the NRA has on, Republican lawmakers, generally speaking. And so in the NRA is already, we already said that they're, they're going to push back against any sort of um, bill, uh, basically like, like this, that's, that's going to curtail um, going under ownership rights, even if it is supposed to be a little bit of a concession. And so as long as the NRA, I think is, is in control of the situation, then I don't really think that there's, any olive branch or concession that can be made um, that that would that that would be put into a, an effective gun control bill at least um, that will appease enough uh, Republicans to, to make it work. Uh, when it comes to the um, your your other question, follow up question about about having um, you know allowing out this 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 bill law, like the, the, the pandemic relief law, I should say, go into effect and, and have, have positive results uh, and then follow up maybe with, with you know, the, the minimum wage, would that allow, allow Democrats a little bit of leeway? Uh, you know, I, 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 I think that a lot, of, a lot of the problems 
with in in Congress is that is that people are 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 very issue specific and and it seems as though there's only very very limited number of issues that are really on the radar of of voters, both Democrat and and Republican. And so I think when it comes, obviously the pandemic relief bills is, is something that's on everyone's mind because it's affecting everyone. The minimum wage is another issue that's on, on people's minds. But I think gun rights is something else that's that's always just gonna be on the minds of, of Republican voters and, and, and some Democratic voters to a lesser extent. And so I don't know if, if there's any sort of goodwill or momentum that Democrats can tap into that's going to be generic across all issues. So I, I just feel like it's going to be always a fight depending on the issue. Right. And I just wanted to plug in the, you know, the, the bill that, you know, I was, I brought up has 60 co-sponsors, but uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal is also bringing a companion bill to the Senate side. Um, and, you know, he's a very uh, ardent supporter of gun control and to see the dynamics at play, of course, you know, the, the odds are right now that we won't get gun control, but, if we can get the ball moving, because this is, remember, Obama said that was one of his failures as president in the aftermath of the uh, the 2012 uh, Sandy Hook shooting, um, where they were trying to get gun control passed in the early days in 2013. It did not happen. Um, and he stood in the Rose Garden with the parents um, and, and, and expressed his frustration. Um, so this is going to be, you know, Biden was right there. Biden was helping whipping up, whip up the vote count for that. So this, I think, has a more of a personal uh, stake for him, you know, because um, he was actually in the arena the first time we were trying to get this thing done. Um, but if there are no other thoughts, I want to pivot a, a little bit to. Uh, I had something time. to say, actually. Oh, just jump in, jump in. Uh, about the 10 day, yeah, no, I don't think that's going to get through the Senate, just by the nature of things, nor would the minimum wage $15 increase probably get to the Senate either, especially if it has to get 60 votes. It's not happening, <laughs> more than likely. Now, of course, it could probably like generate some momentum or something like that, but I also think that. Cassandra brought up an excellent point of like the issue becomes okay. Well, we know that that filibuster is going to be the roadblock. On the flip side, you get rid of it, then it becomes question becomes once Republicans, you know, if they take control of the Senate, let's say, I don't know, a few years from now, four years from now, and do the same thing, and there's no way to stop their agenda as well. So I think it's just a really tricky situation Democrats are in currently and trying to like get their agenda done, but also can be mindful of the fact that like even those procedural roadblocks they have to doing what they want to do actually benefits them potentially down the road. So it's like, do you? Do something now to benefit to benefit yourself currently, or do you like bite yourself in the foot and then like you know, like ten years from now, you can't stop more tax cuts something like that. So I just think that personally, this ten day thing uh, is a great idea. I think it would definitely be helpful in terms of like gun control. But I just don't think that you get a Republican support to actually push it through the Senate and to make this an actuality. Just to oh, I just wanted to say one quick thing about like my perception of this filibuster idea. It's like. I, I understand that it's been used as a congressional tool for as long as it's been around. Um, and so both sides benefit from it. But the fact is it has killed so much legislation in the cradle that we really don't have any progress or anything to revise or anything to amend in places that really need that legislation like quickly. So I think that even if we get rid of the filibuster and it does end up hurting Democrats in the future in one way or another on specific legislation, it'll at least open the door for there to be further legislation and discussion on it. And uh, it would force the government to actually work. It would stop them from just sitting on their hands if they don't like what's being said by the opposing party. And I think that, that um, the, the perception of government in action has done so much to destroy faith in our government as it is, that we need to have some definitive plain steps to regain faith because we're in the middle of a pandemic that was totally avoidable and people are going to forget that, you know, we need to figure out a way to regain trust. Yeah. And that's a really good point because Clyburn this morning and morning Joe, you know, had mentioned in, in reference to um, HR one, which is going to be a huge voting rights uh, piece of legislation. Um, you know, uh, Thurman used the filibuster to strip away civil rights. Um, and so he was saying that, you know, the, the, the filibuster has really been a vehicle not for extending debate or extending, you know, you know, uh, discourse about public policy issues, but uh, as a way to damper uh, and, and, and hinder, um, you know, civil rights from being expanded to, to the American public. And so, 
with that in mind, you know, to your point, Cassandra, you know, the filibuster has really been a huge roadblock in the way of a lot of legislative policies, progressive legislative policies. But as it relates to the immigration issue, because I've seen a lot of folks on my timeline complaining about how Biden took them for granted, how the Democratic Party sold them out. Um, you know, we, they were told to vote Democrat because things would change. And Biden has not really done anything, according to them, uh, as it pertains to the issue of immigration that's different from Trump, uh, because people are still in detention centers um, and children are still not united with their parents. Uh, but when we're looking at, you know, the legislative side of things as it, relate, as it pertains to immigration, <clears throat> we see that Nancy Pelosi did not have the, the, the whip count this week uh, to, to pass the uh, comprehensive immigration reform bill uh, that Biden put forward. And so now they're looking for an alternative uh, way to get this done. And that alternative way um, is what is, is where we are right now. So the move, the, the Biden bill, to, um, you know, has to go through now is through the committee while the full house votes on more targeted immigration legislation that already enjoys broad caucus support. So it seems like a very piecemeal uh, approach, uh, all with the goal, the same goal in mind. Um, according to um, a, 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 a uh, I'm sorry, chart, uh, Jerry Nadler, um, he said, we need to engage in some consultation with key members and stakeholders, but I see no reason why we wouldn't mark it up uh, when we reconvene in April. Um, the Biden, Biden's proposal is a top priority for progressives uh, and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus who say it's a critical uh, piece of legislation that must have action uh, in the early months of his term. Um, remember the legis the Hispanic, uh, you know, population was, was, was saying that the Democratic Party has not really catered to them. Um, and so you saw a large portion of Hispanic voters in Florida, for instance, going and considering voting for the Republican ticket. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on, you know, what's being done as it pertains to immigration. Are, are you in agreement with this new approach to uh, have like a scattershot approach for, for legislation um, because of the lack of support you need for the whip count? Um, and do, or do you resonate with what people are criticizing Biden for, you know, uh, should he be more aggressive as it pertains to immigration? Um, so what I'm going to say is, um, you know, having had the opportunity um, and the honor to work for Congressman Adler, I know this is something that he cares deeply for, right? Um, I remember us um, making sure that he, you know, um, when all of this stuff was going on um, with like, um, kids being put in cages and, you know, him going down to these detention centers and going up to New York to the detention centers and stuff all over the country, you had him actually seeing it firsthand um, where, you know, systems were being put in place, not just within, you know, the Trump administration, but they, they set, you know, immigration back decades, if you want to be real. Now you have Biden coming in trying to unravel so many different threads and trying to get kids back with their families and make sure that students are being deported. And like, there has to be a, a clear way to do that. And I think piecing together different things that are going to help um, like put everything together into a nice little box will help that do what, what it undo that, that work that Trump and his administration did um, in terms of like reforming ICE in terms of like making sure that, I mean, nobody is even talking about the, the things that are happening to the, the the women down there that were in those centers that were being tested and pricked on, you know? So you have to look at everything. I know like we all want things to happen instantaneously, right? I know, um, I think we were talking about, uh, Maria was talking about like the, the reparations comment that was made. Um, giving 2% of farmers some money from a bill isn't reparations. Like we, we understand there's more work that goes into making sure that reparations and, you know, the black community is taken care of, the Hispanic community is taken care of, the Asian American um, um, community is taken care of. We all have priorities, but we all need to come together and find out, like find that sweet spot to be able to help us all and stop trying to like, we need this right now. We also need this right now, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. And this person also said they need this. Like we have to find a good place in the middle and that's what's going to happen. That's what it's going to take for um, this immigration conversation to really push these uh, things forward. That's absolutely right. And, and in addition to that, you know, I was thinking back on the first term of Obama's presidency and a lot of criticism. P 
people in the black community. I mean, when you when I went to the barbershops, people were saying he didn't do anything for black people. He didn't do anything for this community. Uh, people who were in the academia uh, wanted to take the road less travel by and criticize the president. But when you look at the fact that you have uh, two years and you have a certain amount of political capital that you can spend, and you also have a national crisis in the form of a financial crisis, the worst uh, financial crisis since the Great Depression, um, you know, there's there's very little you can do without full cooperation of both houses of Congress. And, and I'm not saying to get everything you want done, but a, a party, remember the grand bargain uh, that was supposed to be struck between uh, John Boehner and, and, and Obama. And Obama actually allowed a, a lot of these uh, entitlement programs to be gutted uh, under the grand bargain. And the Republicans uh, looked like they were going to agree with it only for them to say, we're not going to agree to this. The Tea Party, the Tea Party uh, Caucus said, "We're not going to go along with this." And Obama took to the podium and said, "Will they agree on anything? Uh, will they say yes to anything?" And so Biden, I think, is learning from that as recent history, and he's determined not to make that same mistake. I, I understand, like you said, Jasmine, there's an urgency, uh, and you know, when we're seeing injustice in front of our eyes, and we're seeing children being affected, and mo mothers, and we want to act now, but the political reality right now. Uh, is actually uh, ca causing us to take more of a a, a, a long-winded approach than we would like because of the fact that we don't have the full support that we need. Remember, the House lost significant uh, amounts of seats this past fall, and we're in a very you know deadlock Senate um, that requires folks to cross over the aisle in order for anything to get done. We're no longer now that this. COVID packages behind us. Now we have to, you know, it's going to, it's, it's much harder. Um, and so, you know, my, my question is for you panelists, you know, with that in mind, um, does Biden still deserve criticism for uh, not, you know, being a little bit more aggressive and not making immigration at the forefront as of right now, or, you know, being that we're still in the early days of March, uh, COVID-19 has to take full and top priority. Um, I definitely think pandemic still needs to be taken priority. Um, and like Jasmine said, there were so many points she made that we have to look at the fact that Trump built his whole campaign on borders. He built it all on against dreamers, against unaccompanied children, trying to get in against women who are just need to decide. We need to remember that this is like a very important matter, but that, that there's a lot that needs to be done. Did a really good job with wrapping it up and just saying that yes, there's criticism on this side. There's a lot that needs to be done, and it's going to take time to do it. Um, and how is he handling those matters? But once again, I think the pandemic is at the forefront. Immigration will have to, there's going to have to be some way, like I said, to find the alternative during this deadline. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, I just wanted to add in addition to that. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, to, to both of your points, have this sense of um, impatience. And politics is really the art of the possible. Um, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, we can have lofty ideas. But if we don't have the vote count, uh, we have to work extra hard. Um, and we have to make concessions. Um, and, you know, as it pertains to immigration, I, I do believe that that's a top priority for this administration. Um, I do believe that we're, you know, because remember, he's already... You already saw a change. Um, you know, the, the, the Homeland Security has already ensured that they're going to try to find a way to reunite parents and children. Uh, we did not have that in the past administration. And, you know, the theme of this conversation, just to wrap everything into a nice bow, is what a difference a president makes um, because of the, of the amounts of, of policy changes that permeate through these different bureaucratic agencies. Um, and so when we're looking at, you know, the policies that have already changed, the tide that's already changed in just a few short days when we think about it. You know, we're just coming off of four years of the previous administration. Things have changed so much already drastically. Um, I think we need to give it a little bit more time. And I do think that COVID-19 had to be done first because if it wasn't, um, you know, think about the rest of the legislative agenda. Uh, would that have really, you know, had momentum had this not been a top priority? Um, had you not had the public uh, support behind uh, the first thing that you do. Um, but what's also interesting is that Wyoming Republicans this, this uh, I think this week or last week 
are contemplating a change to state election regulation that might make it more durable for one among their very own, Representative Lynn Cheney, to win re-election. Um, you know, this is interesting because of the fact that they have already censored Liz Cheney and Marjorie Taylor, Marjorie Taylor Greene goes off scotch-free. And, you know, I've had Republican, you know, Republican uh, folks on this panel before, and even they were not able to give really a clear, coherent answer as to why that is. Uh, why is it that you're censoring Liz Cheney, but not censoring the one that started the whole ruckus in the first place? What are your thoughts on this election law change? Because this is, comes at the backdrop of all kinds of states, Arizona, the Supreme Court was considering an Arizona law uh, to made to elections, to, to their election uh, law. Um, Georgia, um, you know, the, the House, Legislative House uh, and the Legislative Senate in Georgia have both put forward measures to make it more difficult to uh, cast a ballot uh, for votes to be counted by mail. Um, and, you know, all of these things we, we expected uh, in the aftermath of this whole uh, voter fraud, uh, you know, fiasco that, that culminated on January the 6th, but what say you panels? Well, um, as far as Lachani goes, I think you hit the nail around the head, Mike. It's, it's retribution. It's, she's, I, I, I think Republicans feel as though, and maybe they right, rightly or wrongly, I don't know, but they, they feel as though that they have to um, play the, the Trump card, even when, when he's not in office, because they're they're they feel like all of their careers are tied to it and they you know many of them have made the choice that they are going to uh do whatever they have to do to stay in office above make, passing good legislation meeting the needs of their constituents and and uh, and, and other substantive areas and it it shows i i think as far as the the uh the the changes in uh, you know in georgia and arizona and uh, in, in other places that that kind of reflects a, a a 20 year maybe even longer project of of the republican party of of uh realizing that that in order for them to continue to to hold the off many of the offices that they do they have to make it more difficult for people to vote because they they're outnumbered their constituents are outnumbered if, if, if we have everyone voting um and so and we have a Supreme Court case, uh, you know, the, out of Arizona that was just argued um, on section whether whether the Arizona's uh, voting laws uh, violate Section Two of the Voting Rights Act, and and I, I think pretty it's pretty it's not very provocative to expect the Supreme Court to um, suggest that it doesn't, and that Section Two of the Voting Rights Act, which may be one of the last sections that actually has any sort of teeth will no longer um, be very effective once the Supreme Court, the conservative majority in the Supreme Court says so. So I think it's part of a, a, a larger project that's been going on for decades of the Republican Party uh, narrowing the aperture of people who are able to actually get to the polls and, and vote. And Jasmine? No, I was just going to say, um, I, you know, of course you want to like feel bad for people like Liz Cheney, but as a Democrat, I do not feel bad for her. Okay. Let's just be real about that. Right. Outside of the one thing that she voted for, which was like impeaching Trump, whatever. What else? Like, look at all the other things that she did. So you, you are seeing people back home in her state say, out of all of the stuff that you did for us that we care so deeply for, we don't like the, the fact that you voted to try to impeach our president, our president that fairly won his election and blase, 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 whatever Trump people are saying, right? Um, I don't feel bad for her, but at the same time, I feel like elections have consequences. No matter who, whatever party is in the, the winning seat, the opposite party is going to do whatever they can to try to rile up those voters and get those people going or get different laws and things like that put in place to be able to help them, you know, next time around. It's just unfortunate that we see a continuous pattern. This isn't something that's new. Republicans have been doing this for decades. Um, when, in, when you're talking about voter suppression, being very strategic about engineering voter fraud and all the rest of that, like all of these different things like that, we're witnessing this and 
there's literally nothing we can do. And Democrats are going to feel it the worst when when it comes time to get out there and, and um, whip up votes and get people out to vote um, for the midterms. And it's, it's going to be horrible. But I think the thing that we can take away from this is that the Democrats have like I think we were talking about this earlier, just like how we have the power to stop being afraid to use that power because Republicans are going to do it whenever use the power that we have right now to make it harder for them in the midterm, make it harder for them whenever they want to like put up somebody to run against Biden or whoever will be running in the next three years. Like they have to do what they can right now and use their power, no matter how small and finite it is, use the power that they have to set us up on the federal level to avoid these things later on down the line. Yeah, And to your point, if Jamie, Har like if I was Jamie Harrison, I'll be wanting to ensure that I hit home the message that they have done nothing to bring home any kind of relief, uh, COVID-19 relief. I was in a, um, a meeting this week with uh, Congressman Adam Kingsinger, and um, he was really, you know, taking questions. And one of the questions I asked him was that, you know, in, in light of the fact that CNBC just last month said that 75% of the party still want Trump to lead it, um, how do you convince, because remember, he started a new super PAC called America First. How do you convince that 75% uh, that it's in their best interest to avoid to 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 just abandon him and move forward, uh, focusing on fiscal conservatism, focusing on social conservative issues, uh, like you know folks like Kinzinger, Liz Cheney, uh, Mitt Romney, uh, Pat Toomey, um, you know Markowski, Susan Collins, all of these Republican moderates who have taken a break from Trump. Uh, you know how how do you hit home the message that it's in their interest to leave him? And he said, well, you know, that's, that number might not look the same in the summer. Um, and we've got to focus on the fact that we're a party that believes in equal opportunity. Uh, they believe that, you know, the child born into, you know, an inner city uh, impoverished situation uh, should have an opportunity to be, you know, to have an education and have opportunities that put them on the same level as someone born in a wealthy family. Um, he said he had a very uh, close, uh, a very strong passion for inner cities. Um, and so that's something that's going to be a core part of what he's trying to do in terms of restoring the Republican Party back to its conservative roots. Uh, I think personally, uh, Kinzinger, I've always suspected, had presidential ambitions, um, if not 24, I'm thinking 28, 2028. Um, but, you know, he sounded sincere. He sounded like he had uh, an actual plan and, 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 you know, there was a frustration. But, you know, is that falling on deaf ears, you know, when you're looking at Wisconsin, that's as Republican as it gets. 28 of the 30 state senators are Republicans. Uh, and 51 of the 60 state representatives are Republicans. Uh, Trump won 70% of the state's vote in November. Um, so this is as red as it gets. <laughs> and you have, you know, a civil war there where the minority is the Liz Cheney. Um, and so this is going to be a very interesting dyna dynamic going into the next two years. I'm wondering if these seats that are up for grabs now are going to be filled by more Trump-like senators. And if so, uh, you know, that that really just derails the, the Biden agenda moving forward. Um, any other thoughts? Well, I'll, I'll just add real quick that I, I think they will be, especially because you, you don't have, you don't even have the, um, the distraction of, of, of Trump being president and making awful decisions. And so, you know, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. If everyone was willing to be on board with what the, the things that his rhetoric and, and the things that he, he symbolized when he, when we, we were faced with the actual uh, fallout of the, of, of those things, then I think it, it stands to reason that, that people without being faced with the negativity of it, will kind of be more reminiscent in, in places like um, Wisconsin where, where Trump's uh, support is, is, has remained very strong. So I think I think in, in those areas, it, yeah, it will be. On the other hand, I think um, in places like suburban Philadelphia where Donald Trump also um, really did well in, in 2016 and didn't do as well in 2020, I actually think that um, that will actually will stay trending in the direction of 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 more more moderate Democrats, maybe even moderate Republicans, and that's why you see people like Pat Toomey um, kind of warm up to the idea of of 
moving himself away from from Trumpisms and, and and that sort of rhetoric. Exactly, and be, being that we have so many legal minds on the panel, um, <clears throat> I would be remiss if I did not bring up the uh, trial of Derek Chauvin, um, the former Minneapolis police officer who had his knee on the neck of uh, George Floyd this past May, or, sorry, May of last year. Um, you know, we're almost at a year when that event happened, uh, but he's going to face additional charges of a third degree murder. Um, the Hennepin County Judge Peter Cahill ruled on Thursday, uh, today, after an appeals court ordered Cahill to reconsider his earlier decision to dismiss the charge. Uh, the court is going to grant the motion, Cahill said, uh, to reinstate the third degree murder charge. Um, you know, as, as law students and, and, you know, folks who are just publicly, I mean, civically engaged, um, we know that, you know, in order to be convicted of this crime, you have to have the requ uh, requisite mental state and, and the action that follows. And it just really seemed clear cut. Um, you, it didn't really seem like the defense to me had anything to work with. You have a man who deliberately had his knee on the guy's neck. And when you look at the transcript of George Floyd begging the man to come off his neck, uh, saying that he's going to comply, um, saying that he's scared, saying, you know, all of these things, begging for his life. Uh, and the man just hell bent on keeping that knee on his neck. Um, it's hard to say that the mental state wasn't there. Um, that we know the action was there. That, you know, the, the the death occurred. But for the defense to argue, you know, this is not directly, um, you know, murder. Uh, how do you make sense of that? I'll hop in before you all get started because I feel you incredible minds are going to give me all that I need to know on the legal end. Um, thinking about it from the perspective as just a black person in America, right? Um, we all witnessed a great injustice. And over the summer, we all rallied together um, in not only his name, but also Breonna Taylor's name and other people that died last year at the hands of just senseless violence, but also white supremacy, right? Um, I think that... Um, and this was a conversation that we had with uh, Leader Schumer here in the Senate um, earlier this week, is that we're going to have to, as Americans, we're going to have to rethink how policing is done in our country. Because in order for people to feel safe, they also have to be able to vocalize, you know, their disagreement without there being a sense of disrespect, Right. You like black people fear and everybody has, especially all black people, they have conversations with their kids like you do not talk back to the police. Right. When you have our counterparts that are able to do that and not have to worry about the, the repercussions of any of that stuff, um, just like just living life and doing whatever they want. Um, so, like, we have to rethink how policing is done, because not just we're in this case, but policing all over this country is done like that. It's happening like that right now in Missouri. We've seen it time and time again in St. Louis. We've seen it time and time again in Florida, in Georgia, all over this country. We're seeing these um, police departments using these out-of-date tactic, tactics, um, and they're calling it policing when they're essentially terrorizing communities. So for me, I'm, I'm a little relieved that um, he's going to be held accountable, but I'm also still very scared. I did not watch the video. I will not watch the video for my own mental health. Um, and I'm encouraging people to like be, you know, involved as much as they can with the trial, but also do it at a, like at a risk of knowing that you're going to be exposed to some things that can cause you trauma. Um, so that's where I am. So you go ahead and talk about all the good juicy details now. I, you know, you gave some really juicy information yourself. Um, but, you know, at, you know, to that point, you know, the, the, the fact that it's third degree to me is stunning because that would mean that he un unintentionally uh, killed the man. Uh, but you have a man sitting on his neck for nine minutes. How, how does that equate to, you know, being unintentional? Um, anyone can jump in, I, you know. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it is absurd that this isn't even going to be considered as a first or, you know, even second degree murder charge considering the facts of the case. But um, I think all of us who are in third year law school have the same memo regarding qualified immunity that we had to work on. Uh, and it's it's wild what you can get away with as a law officer under qualified immunity as long as that right has not been clearly established. And that's a moving target of a standard. So um, 
I, I I think that it's a minor miracle that they were even looking at a murder charge for uh, Mr. Chauvin, especially considering all of the caveats that the defense attorney is trying to put on the trial, like not referring to um, George Floyd as a victim. They're trying to make sure that he doesn't get any kind of um, like sympathetic uh, representation. They're trying to they're trying to mask what they did and make it seem uh, justified, which I understand to a degree. Law enforcement, when they're in the heat of the moment, acting in general, maybe they don't make the best decisions, and judges have to sort of reinforce that they acted correctly even when they didn't so that there will be active cooperation between the judges and enforcement. That just makes sense. Um, but this is an extreme uh, issue, I think, in law enforcement. We know qualified immunity and all these other um, safeguards put in place to protect police officers and not citizens. So to, to answer your question, legally speaking, third degree is woefully inaccurate, yeah, I believe. But politically and socially, it's a minor miracle that we're even getting that. Yeah, and one of the reasons why I'm excited about what the House is doing <clears throat> in terms of legislation is that in the George Floyd bill that they're putting forward, uh, there is a call to reform qualified immunity and make Section 1983 civil rights cases easier to put forward. Um, and I think, you know, the Biden administration put forward a plan uh, in terms of, you know, community policing and everything. The, 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 the thing that stood out to me was reforming um, you know, how to show discriminatory intent, uh, because that's such a high bar uh, to meet. You have to show that there was a discriminatory motive. Uh, but how do you show motive in these in this time and age where, you know, no one's going to blatantly, like they did in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, you know, make accusations that are racist or, or, or deny you based on the slow of your race, just expressly out like that. But to, to try to bring in this 21st century approach to how to bring forward these civil rights claims uh, was one of the things I was excited about this administration for. Um, and, you know, for folks who are complaining about what, what are they doing for black people, I, I would encourage them to stay in, engaged and pay attention uh, because it'll go right over your head and you'll continue to complain and spread misinformation. You know, as we were saying all night, the, the presidency makes a huge difference. <laughs> and, uh, you know, who run, who, who's in the executive uh, position makes a huge difference because of all the appointment positions that come after that. Um, Mike, Chris, Maria, anything? Um, yeah, I mean, just kind of echoing and adding to, to the, what's already been said. I, I, I think, I think it's, it's tough because to speak to um, Jasmine's point about, about reforming police departments like that's that's something that that i think comes into play here as well as as you, you know what cassandra was saying about about you know safeguards for for police officers who, who do things that are wrong and i think that both of them are, are kind of intersected here because because part of the reason why i think that that first degree murder or second degree murder uh perhaps aren't available here is not something out of reality or out of justice, but out of, out of the, the inadequacy of, of our legal environment and also the, the, the institution of, of the social justice system in general. And, and, and what I mean by that is, is that, that as a police officer, if leaning on someone's knee, put, placing your, your knee on someone's neck is, is, is allowed in, as, a, as a matter of course, as a custom in that police department, that's a defense, whether we like it or not. That's a, a defense that I, I assume is any good lawyer would would bring up. Um, and obviously, you, you deal with the, the the element of times like okay, well, placing your deal on someone's neck for you know thirty seconds to, to to subdue them is not the same thing as doing it for nine minutes as a person begs for their life. Uh, clearly, those are those are two different circumstances. Um, but I think that the, the the notion that it's allowed still becomes a problem because that becomes a, like a factual determination of, of, of whether the, the jury thinks that that the nine minutes is enough of a difference to, to make it go from an accident by a police officer doing his job to um, a homicide that is that's criminally liable. Um, and so I, I think that's that's part of the, the issue 
is the customs that the that police departments have in place and, and that allow police officers to, to fall back on and say, look, I'm, I was just doing what the department said I could do to, to handle the situation. And I think that also, and just to add really quickly, you know, in addition to the, the to add to the list of, of, of things that need to be reformed is the way municipal liability is, is handled as well. Because, because when you uh, sue a police officer, whether qualified immunity uh, exists or not in that situation, one of the issues is is that that's one officer. So even if that justice is served on that officer, there's still a custom of, of, of brutality in, in any given police force. And that's something that can only be addressed by a uh, municipality. And so if you're allowed to, to, to take from the pockets of the municipalities, then it becomes an economics question of whether of of at which point are is is a city or county willing to pay for uh, officers wrongdoing, basically. No, that's an excellent point. Anyone else before we wrap it up? Well, if not, uh, I just want to thank this really uh, amazing panelist, the few, the proud, the brave, the panelists. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Um, I really enjoyed thoroughly this conversation. Um, you know, so much was shared, um, so much, you know, in-depth knowledge uh, was given. And, you know, I want to encourage the, the those who are viewing to continue to be engaged uh, and to be cautious of misinformation that may be spreading uh, online. Um, I want to encourage you to be good citizens and pay attention to the legislative proposals that are being uh, put forward on your behalf. Um, and, you know, to, you know, act accordingly, uh, make your votes uh, accordingly and, and participate in the electoral process accordingly. Thank you all so much for making episode 34 the episode it was. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and conclude. I think President Biden is addressing the nation right now. Uh, so thank you all for giving your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. All right. Have a good night, everyone.